lately. Uh, my first tendency is not to demonstrate faith or confidence or trust. My first tendency is to worry a little bit. And then I move to the place of confidence and trust. I don't know how you are. Some of you are just machines. You just faith your way through life. And it doesn't affect you as much. But some of us are not wired that way. And we need to know how to take that worry and fear and anxiety and all those things and give them to the Lord. I go to him in my quiet time. You ever do this? And you say, Lord, why am I on edge so much these days? Is that a Holy Spirit feeling or is that my fear? Lord, are these the last of the last days that we're living in? Lord, how do you want me to respond to these tumultuous times? Lord, will you please give me courage and strength and wisdom and faith to face these days with confidence? It's okay to go to the Lord and talk to him like that, by the way. We're living in days where, that are fraught with spiritual battles. There's war in the heavenlies. There's war on earth. There's war in human hearts. These are days when, if you look at the persecuted church around the world, the followers of the Lamb are being attacked on every front. These are not days for the faint of heart. These are days that require bold confidence in the Lord. These are days that require a solid commitment to the infallible Word of God. If we don't have this book to cling to, we have nothing. And so we need that desperately. So how do we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ navigate these days? That's basically what I want to help you answer in the next couple of weeks. How are we to respond as the world and the flesh and the devil assault us? As they manifest their full animosity toward God and toward his people. What are we to do? The verse that's been going through my mind very often is found just at the end of the parable. Let's see here. Got my green light. I don't have my advanced function. There it is. Okay. There we go. And it's found, it's the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow. It's found in Luke chapter 18, verses 6 through 8. And uh, it says this, And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith on the earth? Now, in the context of this parable, it's probably referring to the kind of faith that this poor widow had, a persistent, unfailing, nagging sort of persistence in asking God what he needed, what he, for what he could do for her. But it might also indicate that when the Lord returns, there will be only a remnant who are true to him. Will he find faith on the earth? But in the meantime, each of us should be stimulated to the kind of faith that cries to God night and day, night and day. 
I've been waking up in the middle of the night lately, just crying out, say, Lord, are you coming? Lord, is this the last? Lord, how can you use me? And, and it's almost a nightly occurrence. And how do I say this? It's, it's almost a nightly necessity for me to cry out to God. I have six children. Well, my wife had six children. <laughs> and, and we have 19 grandchildren. And it's just a joy. But along with that is this tremendous prayer burden for the days they're going to be facing. Uh, it seems as though faith is declining a little bit in our country. Have you noticed that? Uh, and that may be the way it is in the days preceding the Lord's return, but I'd like to suggest to you this morning that it doesn't have to be that way in our individual lives or in your corporate life as Cascade Bible Church. It doesn't have to be that way. Faith doesn't have to decline. Uh, God has made provision for you and me, for all of us, to be able to walk in faith and in a faith that brings honor to Jesus. I think Jesus is most pleased when we honor him in the toughest times. He's most pleased when we offer, honor him in the toughest times. And so I want to take a couple of Sundays and talk about how to have great faith in these last days. So if you would turn with me to where you were last week in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. I know Pastor Brian did a great job of leading you guys through the book of Ephesians. I watched some here and there, and I watched last Sundays, and it's a, he did a great job with the armor. But as I'm thinking in terms of faith, and I'm thinking in terms of these days, I just want to read these, some of these verses again to kick these thoughts off with you, these armor thoughts. And beginning in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, or above all, take up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows, the fiery darts of the evil one. All of the fiery darts of the evil one. In those days, there were two types of arrows. They had a, a big, longer, heavier, extremely sharp war arrow. And the archers would launch those, and if they were to hit you in a place with no armor, they just all the way through and left the big hole. And, but they were also designed to penetrate the breastplate armor and put down those men who were in the front phalanxes of, of the formation so that the 
oncoming army would begin to have to trip and then negotiate the dead bodies of their fellow soldiers. It was, it was kind of a fear weapon because, you know, you're, you're looking there and you're trying to peel people away so you can be next in line. And it was, they were heavy, big arrows. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a lighter arrow, an arrow that was even not as sharp as those big, heavy arrows. And it was wrapped in cloth and soaked in pitch. And they would light those arrows and they would fire them at their enemy. Uh, they were cruel weapons because they were designed just to go in a little ways and then that pitch would continue to burn up everything inside. They were cruel. Um, their goal was to burn their enemy up from the inside out. So Satan is shooting fiery darts at us. He wants to start a fire inside of us that will consume us. And so if we don't protect ourselves against those fiery darts, there he goes, he's shooting the fiery dart of fear. And it gets inside and it starts to burn. It starts to consume us. He shoots the fiery dart of anxiety. He shoots the fiery dart of bitterness or gossip or slander or, or lust or jealousy or greed. Any, he has a whole bunch of different kinds of fiery darts. And he loves to shoot them at God's people, not so that they're, they're just out and out killed, but so that they begin to burn up, be consumed from the inside out. And uh, have you ever been like me? I'll be walking along and all of a sudden, wow, where in the world did that ugly thought come from? We sometimes ask ourselves, it didn't come from the world. It came from Satan as he's firing these fiery darts. I'd like to have Gary get a little bit bitter at Jim. Did you see what Jim did? He fell asleep when I was preaching. Yeah. And I, I, I dwell on that. And it begins to burn me up from the inside out. And, and he, that's the way he works. And when the, when the Roman soldiers would go into battle, well, I got to point it back here, don't I? You. <laughs> there we go. When they would go into battle, they would take their four foot by two foot shields, and, and they would, uh, the ones in front would place theirs side to side like you see here, and, and the ones behind them would place theirs over the top so that there's a full canopy over that. Uh, and, and this kind of defense required teamwork and trust. And I want to suggest to you in these days, Satan's going to fire the fiery darts at you that says, you know, things just aren't the same at church. I'm going to stay home. And what happens when you stay home? There's one of those top shields or one of those front shields that's not in place. And it's very important that it's, we recognize this is a corporate deal. And whatever we're going through as a church family, whatever we're going through as a, a nuclear family, we need to be armored up. And like Paul tells the church at Ephesus to use the shield of faith to protect themselves 
from those things that would burn them up from the inside out. Above all, that phrase doesn't mean in priority. It doesn't mean faith is more important than the breastplate of righteousness or the belt of truth. It just means the helmet of salvation, the gospel, shoes, the sword of the spirit. It just means in addition to all of this, cover all of this with the shield of faith so that the fiery darts don't have an opportunity to get in. The New Testament has an awful lot to say about faith, and so much so that I don't even pretend to think that we can get through it in two Sundays. But it, we'll cover some of it, enough to whet your appetite. Uh, there are verses like these in the, in the New Testament uh, that we're going to look at. It talks about little faith, and it talks about great faith. Okay, Mark 6, little faith, Matthew 6, 30. When he's on the, talking on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, he says, don't worry, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, if he does that, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O of little faith? So I, I think we can assume if, if God sees us worrying all the time, we're in the little faith category. Uh, he says in Matthew 8, 26, uh, when the storm threatened to sink the boat, that Jesus was asleep in the bow. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Why are you afraid? If we have fear that just cripples us, that causes us to, I was going to say cry like a girl, but I'd probably get beat up by the girls in here. <laughs> but, you know, if, if, if there's something that creates that kind of fear in us, then we need to recognize maybe we're in the little faith category. In uh, Mark 14, 31, Peter began to sink after walking a ways on the water. People always say, oh, poor Peter, he didn't have faith. He, why? You know, he walked out on the water and then he sank. I didn't see any other disciples walking alongside him. And there, there's a lesson there as far as fear and little faith. And it's that we can move ahead and do some amazing things and still sink sometimes. Uh, Jesus, it says, and he said to them, why are you so afraid? No, it says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? In uh, Matthew 16, 8, when Jesus was telling the disciples to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, but Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Okay, so uh, worrying about... Provision. That's all, that's all they were worrying about was provision. They didn't get the, the yeast of the Pharisees analogy that Jesus was telling them. Then we talk about great faith. Matthew 8, 10. When, when Jesus, let's see, uh, this is a, the, the Roman centurion. And a, he's coming to get help for his paralyzed servant. And when, he, when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And then in Matthew 15, 28, the Canaanite woman who was coming to get help for her demon-possessed daughter. And he says, Jesus answered her and said, O woman, 
O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed. Those are the places that say there's great and little faith. First uh, Timothy 3.13 would indicate that we can have a bold faith. Those who heard have served well as deacons, obtained for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So you see, the Bible talks about the fact that there's great faith and there's little faith. Uh, I really don't want to be described as one who has little faith, do you? I want to be described as one who has great faith. If we don't want to be described as having little faith, what's our option? Have great faith. I'm just kind of a black and white guy, but if, if little's not, little faith's not good, great faith is really good. And in our Christian circles, I've noticed that we as people talk about faith an awful lot. But I wonder if sometimes it isn't just part of our Christian vocabulary. It's kind of a Christianese. Oh, just have faith, brother. Just have faith. You know, I've got faith that this will go on. Yeah. And, and we use it kind of almost flippantly. And I, I wish that we could understand and become so familiar uh, with the word and what faith means that we don't use it flippantly. I want to bring it to the forefront if I can. We're living in days where nothing seems stable anymore. Uh, nothing can be relied on as being true. Unless you know of a news channel, I don't. These are days that we need to know what faith is and cling to it like nothing else if we hope to navigate these uncertain days. You remember when the apostles asked Jesus to increase their faith? It was in uh, Luke 17. That's showing up. It's moving. Are you just punching it for me when I'm punching a button? Okay. (laughs) Making me feel important and he's actually the guy doing it all. Uh, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, what kind of faith is mustard seed? Seems to me like that'd be tiny. But it's not compared... What, for what Jesus was saying, he was saying that uh, this mustard seed, uh, well, that kind of faith is able to move clear the mulberry trees. I mean, the mulberry, the black mulberry tree had tremendous roots. They, they just, if your wife, guys, if your wife told you to go out and dig up that mulberry tree, you'd be mad at her for a year. Because it would require a ton of work, unless you got a backhoe. And so I really, uh, I want you to know that that mustard seed of faith, while we think of it being small, it's not little faith. It's strong faith. So what does little faith mean? That we don't even have a mustard seed size of faith. So faith is foundational to the walk of a believer. Faith is foundational to the walk of a believer. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. 
Faith, is, faith somehow unlocks the power of God in the realm of our daily life. Faith somehow unlocks the power of God in the realm of our daily life. In 2 Corinthians 5, it, it says we're to live by faith and not by sight. And when we live by faith, we're living in this ongoing power of God. It unlocks that power and, and, and it moves us ahead with confidence and we don't succumb to all the fear and the anxiety and the worry that we normally would have. And you'll be walking along and you'll say, God, increase my faith. Lord, I want to have faith in these days. I want to be bold and confident in you. And he, will, he loves to answer that prayer. Faith isn't something we do. We can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Faith is something that God gives us. And when we're looking to him and asking him to increase it, all of a sudden you'll be walking along and say, you know what? I haven't been overcome by worry for three weeks. And that's when you need to say, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I'm sorry I didn't recognize this on the first day. But when you have a life pattern, it takes a while to break that. But we need to understand that faith isn't just personal. Like I mentioned earlier, it has this corporate dimension. And that's why we need to think about this together on a Sunday morning. In order to have great faith, in order to have great faith, we must understand the three meanings of faith in the New Testament. Number one, it's what we would call saving faith. This is the faith that is active at the moment of salvation. When, when you come to that point where you say, Jesus, I, I know that you died in the on the cross for my sins. You were buried. You were raised again the third day. All of this to show your power over death and to pay the penalty that I deserve to pay. That's saving faith. And, and that faith is a means of our salvation. It's the kind of faith that is talked about in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. I experienced this kind of saving faith on December 25th, 1974. I would tell you how old I was then, but you, you're smart. You know how to do math. And, and, uh, but I was, I was 22. 22 years old. We'd been married a year and a half. And we had argued about the existence of God. Kathy was on God's side. I was against it. And, and the reason was, is that I knew if there was a God and he's who he said he was, and I admitted that he existed, I was the biggest idiot in the world for not submitting my life to him. So I had to argue that he didn't exist. I lost yeah. So there's a saving faith. Uh, there, the faith can also refer to a body of truth, the body of truth. The faith. That's biblical doctrine. Oops, am I, I went too far, didn't I? Have you, you guys already got that ahead of me before I said it? Oh, man. It's biblical doctrine. We, re, we refer to our our, our uh, doctrinal statements sometimes as what? Statements of faith. 
Faith in, is referred to in places in the Bible as the body of truth. Acts 6, 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to what? The faith. What? The teaching of Jesus. Responding to the gospel. And then they become obedient to what Jesus was teaching and saying. And 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Second, or Colossians 2, 7. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So there, there is saving faith, there's the body of truth, and then there's also living faith. Living faith, that daily reliance and trust and rest in the Lord for our daily lives. Living faith. And we have to notice what each one is in context, which one is being talked about when we read the Bible. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. James 2.7, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. So saving faith without a living faith is a dead faith. And, and so the progression of those three things we might be able to put into a sentence where it says, okay, we respond by faith to the faith and we live by faith. And based on that fact, our lives are to be lived out by faith. Now, if we're going to respond in these days with faith, sometimes your fear, sometimes your worry about your future, sometimes all of the things that are affronting you can be answered by going back and looking at your saving faith. Did I believe in Jesus? Did I receive him as my Lord and Savior? Did I trust him that he was my substitute? Did I do that? And so sometimes you can be in a situation and you just need to look back and remember what happened when you got saved. And, oh, yeah, I'm ready to go. Sometimes you, you get in a situation where the only thing that can really calm you is the faith, the body of truth. And you need to just immerse yourself in a certain topic or a certain portion of Scripture and just let it wash you and strengthen you and build you up in the inner man. And sometimes... You got to just get, quit whining and get moving and live by faith. It all comes to play, and God will show you clearly. Now, in order, in order to understand, in order to understand and have great faith, we must understand that faith is not stagnant. It requires action. It requires action. Why do we act? Why do we do what we do in faith? There are three things, the basis of three things. I want to look at these because it's important to know that God does not ask us to do anything without providing the resources to do it. And these three things involve all three persons of the Godhead. There's the promises. Whoops, I got it right there. There's the promises of God the Father. Uh... And those promises create confidence in the life 
of a believer. God gives us a lot of promises in his word. And that creates confidence for us. Ellie Maxwell said that faith is based entirely upon the bedrock of what God has said. It is. Our faith is based entirely on this. If my faith is based on another person, my wife, my children, my friends at church, if my faith is based on that, it's going to be shaky at times because we're all sinners saved by grace. And so he says, we have to base our faith on the bedrock of the word. When everything else in this world begins to shake, this word stands firm. It doesn't leave us. I like that old saying, God said it, I believe it, that's good enough for me. You ever hear that growing up? God said it, I believe it, that's good enough for me. Uh, A second basis of faith is the commands of God the Son. Commands provide direction in the life of the believer. They provide direction in the life of the believer. I really love reading the Gospels and seeing what Jesus said. I love having the disciples and the writers of Scripture, the authors of Scripture, recall what Jesus said because it encourages me. It's right from the Savior's mouth. There's a... And little axiom. There's a lot of axioms in the Christian life that I like, but we must. I, this is one of my favorites. We must commit ourselves to obey the words and commands of Jesus before we even hear them. Let me ask you a question: Is Jesus God? Is He infallible? Is He eternal? Is He the author of the Word? Okay. Okay then if he says something we haven't heard yet, and by the way, it it won't be outside of this book, okay? It'll be here. You'll be able to confirm it here. But if we come across something that Jesus said and we're reading the Gospels, that sort of thing, we can trust him and we're going to commit ourselves to act on it because that's what Jesus said. I even tell that to people who knew converts. You know, you're going to start reading through the the Gospels, and you're going to start reading. But I want you, if Jesus is great enough to save you, and he is, then he is great enough to obey. And if you, I want you, before you start reading, to commit to obey whatever God would say to you. Don't you love reading where he says, therefore go forth, go into all the world and preach the Gospel. We can do that. We can do that. Some of you in here are going to go. You're going to be sent. You're going to, you're going to be the mouthpiece, the, the tip of the spear. Others of you are going to pray. And others of you are going to give so they can go. And when that happens, when that begins to take place, that is when the gospel in all of its power goes forth because you are obeying the commands of Jesus. So... Better quit. I could go for a long time on that one. We simply do it because he said it, and that is faith.
C.S. Lewis said, if what you call your faith in Christ Jesus does not involve taking the slightest notice of what he says, then it's not faith at all. Not faith or trust in him, but only intellectual acceptance of some theory about him. Isn't that good? And the third uh, motivation or the basis of why we act in faith are the promptings of the Holy Spirit. The promptings of the Holy Spirit move us to action. You see, we'll be reading the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit will prompt us to say, you know, you should go share this with so-and-so. Or you should go invite so-and-so to the men's dinner next Saturday night. Or you should do this. Or you should do that. And if it's anything that would build up the kingdom, you know good and well that it is not Satan telling you to do that. If it's something that's in line with the word of God, follow hard. And the more you follow in these days, the greater it will go and be. James tells us that that faith works, it acts. He tells us that faith prays. In James 1, 6, let him ask in faith no doubting, with, with no doubting. And he says in chapter 5, and the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. You know, the, the Bible is full of this fact that nothing pleases the Lord more than when we walk or we move forward in life by faith because we love him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a child, I didn't particularly like obeying my parents. but I loved my parents and I would obey them because I loved them. Not because I thought they made any sense, but because I loved them. My mom was five foot two, about a hundred pounds and just a little lady. And I remember as a teenager, I was back talking her and she hauls off with this hand, just going to slap me. And I caught it right here and she threw it with the other hand and I caught it right there. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? This could go from bad to worse. (laughs) But I want my mom. I love my mom. Why did I do this? And so I just put both hands down at the side. And that sweet little thing slapped me with both hands. So we're trusting the promises of God. We're we're obeying the commands of Christ. We're responding to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity, all three members of the Godhead are the reasons for faith. They're the basis for our active faith. I want you to know, too, that faith can never be greater than the object of faith. Therefore, in order to have great faith, we must believe in a great God. Your faith is never greater than the object of your faith. Therefore, in order to have a great faith, we must believe in a great God. Your view of God has a huge impact on the size of your faith. How big is your God? Is your God big enough to to do what he says he's going to do? Is he big enough to bring to culmination the end of days? Is he big enough to speak the the words of creation and in six 24-hour days created the earth? 
Is he that big? My answer is yes. And the bigger your God, the better, the, size, the greater the size of your faith. And sometimes you have to just stop and say, whoa, look at our government. God is so much bigger than that. Whoa, look at all the immorality going on across the nation. Us getting to celebrate Gay Pride Month in June. What's happening, God? God is bigger than that. You see, we shouldn't fret. When we get sitting in a corner and sucking our thumbs and saying, oh man, what am I going to do? You just need to think about how big your God is. Your view of God has a huge impact on the size of your faith. If your God's small and inconsistent, if your God's small and inconsistent, so will be your faith. If your God's big and always faithful, so will be your faith. So my friends, if we're worried, what should we do? We should focus on who our God is not on what's going around us, on around us to cause the worry. How big is your God? In order to have great faith, we must understand the biblical definition of faith. And so we're going to go to Hebrews 11, chapter 1. I mean, Hebrews 11, chapter 1, verse 1. And, and where he says in Hebrews 11, 1, now faith... Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The writer expresses his definition of, faith, definition of faith here in this passage much like a Hebrew poet would. You see it in the Psalms all the time, uh, where there are two parallel, almost identical phrases to emphasize the meaning. And the verse here is not a full theological definition. We could spend the rest of the summer going through that. But it emphasizes certain characteristics of faith. And it, so it says there, you, you have the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's parallel, identical phrases almost. Um, and Paul starts, or I won't say Paul, the author to Hebrews starts off this way in order that he can begin to talk about all those in Israel in the Hebrew hall of faith. So let's think this morning about the assurance, the substance or the assurance of things hoped for. The assurance of things hoped for. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came in the flesh, men and women had to rest on the promises of God alone. They didn't have the commands of Christ or the daily inward promptings of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was active at times in the Old Testament. But, but it wasn't the indwelling Holy Spirit that we know today. And they didn't have those promptings. And so the Old Testament believers had to rely, rely on the promises of God. The promises of God alone. They didn't have the commands. They didn't have the promptings. And, and God told them of what? There's a Messiah coming. A deliverer. You should be watching for him. And, and one day... Israel would be made clean and would be ruled by this Messiah. The faithful believed in God's promises, even though many were incomplete and vague. They didn't even know uh, 
They didn't have a lot of specific light. If they had had the light we have now in the New Testament, I wonder what men and women of faith they would have been. But they just said, God promised this. I'm going to follow it. I'm going to follow it. I'm going to trust it. I'm going to lay down my life for it. And that's what faith is. Faith is living in a hope that is so real it gives absolute assurance. They took God, the Old Testament saints took God at his word. Faith isn't wistful longing. Oh, faith is not, I hope this works out. Oh, I hope God does what he said he'd do. Faith is, I know whom I have believed. I'm persuaded that he is able to do whatever he wants to do. It's wistful longing. It's not wistful longing. True faith is an absolute certainty of things that in the world that, cons- that the world considers unreal and impossible. Unreal and impossible. People mock Christianity because of the fables, because of the fairy tales. It couldn't possibly be true. The scientists say the earth could not possibly have been created in six literal days, like the Hebrew word yom says. It it can't, can't be possible, and they mock it. They consider unreal and impossible, and that's where faith steps up. Christian faith is belief in the almighty, unfailing God against the world, not belief in the improbable against chance. So we follow a God whose audible voice we've never heard. And we believe in Christ whose face we have not seen. We've done so because our faith has a reality, a substance, and an assurance that is unshakable. I don't care who mocks what I believe. I don't care who calls me a name because I know who died on the cross for my sins and I will not disappoint him. I will not deny him. I will not reduce him to the level the skeptics want to reduce him in my life. Now, if you're, if you're doing that, you're living at a level uh, like that. Jesus said you're especially blessed. In John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me and believed, you have believed. But he says, what's he say about us? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. We have a special level of blessing by believing in the one we've not seen. Have you ever had anybody tell you, you know, if I just could have walked with Christ and talked with him and sat around with him, listened to his teaching, I could live this life so much easier. All you have to do is look at what happened to the apostles after, initially after he left. No, that's not true. But you're especially blessed. Even in Hebrews eleven twenty six, it talks about Moses. He says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ, the Messiah, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking to the reward. Here's an Old Testament saint that was looking to the promises. Moses shared a belief that the Messiah was coming, and he took a stand on that messianic hope. And he forsook all of the material things that he could touch and see and that were his in Egypt to see a Messiah 
who would not come to earth for another 14 or 1500 years. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? That was my favorite story as a kid and still one of my favorites. They were confronted with the choice of obeying Nebuchadnezzar, whom they could see very well because they were right in front of him, or God, whom they had never seen. And without hesitation, they chose God to obey God. <laughs> I love it. You ever think about that? Without hesitation, they said, nope, sorry, you throw us in there, but I know we haven't seen God, but we believe him. And what did God do for those three fellows? He came in the fire. Then they saw God in the fire. When they were, as they were risking the fires, it would turn them into briquettes. They saw God. Man's natural response is to trust his physical senses, to put his faith in the things he can see and hear and taste and feel. But the man of God, the woman of God, puts their trust in something more durable and dependable than anything we'll ever experience with our senses. If we were to take the time and ask all of you, what is the favorite smell you love, you have coming out of the kitchen? That is a smell you, you just get your attention right away. I used to walk into my grandmother's kitchen. She, would, she cared for me when I was young. And she would have these wonderful chocolate chip cookies going. And my senses told me that just around this corner was waiting a glass of cold milk and all the cookies I could eat. But more real than that physical sense is, this, is the truth based on the word of God that Jesus died in my place. He paid the penalty for my sins. He wants to walk with me. And one day he's coming back and I want to be ready. See, our senses can lie to us even. One time, I've got to tell you my whole story because... One time I went walking into the kitchen and I could smell chocolate chip cookies but there's no milk on the table and there's no grandma in the kitchen. Well, I knew precisely what to do with those chocolate chip cookies. And I ate them. You may not be able to notice, but I can eat a lot. Or I used to. When I was a growing kid, I could eat more than I should tell you about. But I ate those cookies and my grandmother came in. She'd been out in the garden. She came in, and she saw me, and she saw the empty cookie rack. And she started to cry because she had made them for a church meeting that night for a special event they were having. And even though I was her favorite grandson, I broke her heart. My senses told me that was for me. It wasn't. And sometimes our senses, what we see and taste and feel and hear, we think it's all about us, but it's not. God is all about us. 
in Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time begin. When you act in obedience to the word of God, even though, even though all of your being and all of your emotions are crying out to act differently, even though the cookie smells are wafting in your nose, but you choose to obey God. That's faith. That's faith. So I want you to remember that your senses are going to cry out in these last days. You're going to think you need to do something. That old axiom, that old saying, don't just stand there, do something. And sometimes for the believer, it should be, don't just do something, stand there. Because if you've got the armor of God in place, having done all to stand, stand therefore. And I want to close this morning with this thought. So if when he, that word stand that God, that, that uh, Paul uses in Ephesians, stand therefore with all your armor in place. It's the same word that the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates when David hacked Goliath's head off and he stood there. Same word. He's standing in victory. It's a stance of victory. And we have, over, he, he's, this is the victory that we've overcome the world, even our faith. And so folks, these days don't fear. Don't give in to the, all the what-ifs that the enemy sends. Don't let those fiery darts penetrate. Keep the shield of faith up there that can extinguish those so that you're not burned up from the inside. And if you do that, you will be blessed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. Your, your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierces between the division of soul and spirit. It determines in between our, the thoughts and intentions of our heart. It plays umpire all the way through. And God, I pray for these dear ones here today that as they're going to be living in times that are not quite what they had planned on and we're not quite sure what the purposes are, what the outcomes will be, we do know that we've read the end of the book and Jesus wins. And we're going to just plant our flag by you. We're going to stand side by side with you. We're going to let you be in us and rule over us. We're going to take your word for what it is, infallible, eternal truth. And we're going to stand in these days, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.